Let's pray and ask God to open up his word to us. Lord, you know how much I need your help this morning. And would you meet me, I pray. And would you work in all of our hearts and lives. This, this topic in particular this morning, I feel like Satan would love to blind us to this. That's what he does. Blinding us to your, your glory, your righteousness. And so, Lord, please bring your power upon me. Open my eyes more and each of our eyes more so that we can see more clearly who you are and trust you and love you and be all that you've called us to be. Come and do that now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, last week, I said that uh, Jerry and I feel like 2012, there's a couple things that we want to be, we're praying about, we want to be encouraging you to step up and and, and pursue. Uh, Growing and trusting Jesus Christ, it's foundation for everything. Go deep in him, his word, prayer, meeting him on a regular basis, and then the outflow of that is going to be uh, stronger marriages if you're married, more Christ-centered marriages, more tender marriages, more established marriages. The outflow of that will be families, families that are full of nurture, families that are full of Jesus, families that are full of fun and hugs and love and warmth, just really solid, warm, Christ-centered, nurturing families. And then we're praying for our home groups so we can experience even more connectedness and even more laying our lives down for each other, even more love for each other, even more compassion, love for people around us who don't know Christ so that we're taking steps, like I mentioned, um, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, with our circle of friends, so that we'll see people coming to know Christ and baptized and joining into our, our home groups, joining into this church community. Those are the things we're praying for. But like I said last week, we won't be able to do any of that unless we are going deep in knowing God. And so we're memorizing Daniel chapter 1132. How's that been going this week? Daniel 11.32, okay, let's, let's quote it. And remember, you want to put the reference at the beginning and the reference at the end. Work on this in your family. Work on this, you know, while you're driving to work, as long as you keep your eye on the road, right, just at different times. So Daniel 11.32, how does it go? The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Daniel 11.32, okay, let's say it one more time. Daniel 11.32, The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So when we're going deep in Daniel 11.32, yes, that's right. So when we're going deep in knowing God, the result is we'll stand firm because every day there's fiery darts from the evil one that are coming our way, right? We've got to stand firm and we need to take action. We don't just stand firm, we're not just defensive. We are that, that's crucial, but we're also taking action. Marriages. Homes, home group, neighborhood, workplace, and so on. So to help us know God, we're taking four weeks at the very beginning of this year to talk about who God is, so that we can go deeper in knowing God. Now last week we talked about God's holiness, and this morning we're going to talk about God's righteousness. Why is that such an important topic? God's Righteousness. There's lots of reasons why. I mean, all through the scriptures we see people praising God for his righteousness. Lots and lots of reasons, but what I want to focus on just to answer this question is that God's righteousness is, is the motivation for everything that he does. I mean, everything God does is righteous. 
That's true because if it wasn't, then there'd be some things he would do that would be unrighteous, which is not the case. So every single thing that God does is righteous. Like For example, you won't be surprised by this, probably most of you, but what motivates God to punish sin is his righteousness. Okay, look at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22. We're going to be putting the scriptures up here since we've got a lot of them this morning. So Isaiah 10, 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, very, very numerous, in other words, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. So because of Israel's persistent sin and rebellion, God in his righteousness decrees destruction against Israel, and the vast majority of them were killed, and only a remnant returned. But notice that this destruction that was decreed, what was it overflowing with? Righteousness. God's righteousness is what motivates God, what moves God to punish sin. Now, like I said, that probably doesn't surprise you, but what might surprise you is to realize that it's also God's righteousness that motivates and moves God to forgive sin. Did you know that? You might have some doubts. Let me show you. Psalm 51.14. David's praying. You know the the situation. He's, He's murdered Uriah and committed adultery with Bathsheba. And now he's broken. And look at what he prays. Psalm 51, 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. What's he praying for there? Forgiveness. I am guilty before you. Deliver me from my guilt. Forgive me. So deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Because when God forgives you, What he's just done is displayed his righteousness. His righteousness isn't just what moves God to punish sin. It's also his righteousness that moves God to forgive sin. Okay, now, if that puzzles you, that's a good thing. Because that would have puzzled me greatly a few years ago before I had seen really biblically what is God's righteousness. I'm hoping that this morning we're going to dig a little deeper Maybe think some new thoughts as we look at what the scriptures teach us about God's righteousness. That you'll leave here today with a whole other perspective on what God's righteousness is and that you will love God's righteousness. I would guess that not many of you are, are, are really thrilled with God's righteousness. It's like, well, that's, that's why he's going to punish me. Why would I love that? There is much more to God's righteousness than that. So let's dig in. What does it mean that God is righteous? What is God's righteousness? See, for years, what I heard is that for God to be righteous meant that he always does what's right. So, okay. And, and that is true. I mean, he always does what's right, but that misses the main point of what God's righteousness is. What does the word righteous mean in the Bible? There's a great illustration in Leviticus. We're going to put it up here. Chapter 19, verses 35 and 36. It's a perfect illustration, just in everyday life. God's talking to his people, and he says, you shall do No wrong in judgment, in measures of length, or weight, or quantity. You shall have righteous balances. Now, I just need to mention, um, ESV translates this word righteous as uh, just, I think is what it is. But the Hebrew word here is the word for righteous, tzedek. Okay, so literally, you shall have righteous balances, 
righteous weights, a righteous ephah, which is a way to measure grain, and a righteous hin, which is a way to measure liquids, like quartz, something like that. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so what would a righteous balance be? What's a righteous balance? It's a balance that fits reality. Fits reality. That's the word that I found really helpful. In other words, if the reality is that both these different objects weigh exactly 10 pounds, then a righteous balance is going to show the reality of that by, just like that one, okay, by by showing that they weigh the same. So a righteous balance is a balance that fits reality. Or what, what would a righteous weight be? A righteous weight is a weight that fits reality. So if this little weight here says 16 ounces on the front, it's not really going to be 14. It's going to fit the reality of what it says it is. It's going to be a real bona fide 16 ounces. So a righteous weight is one that fits reality. How about a righteous ephah? An ephah is a measurement used to buy wheat. So if you're telling your customers, I'm selling an ephah of wheat here, then the ephah to be righteous, the wheat needs to match to what you just said it was. If you say it's an ephah, then it's really a bona fide ephah. So the word righteous means something fits reality. It's in accord with reality. That's what righteous means all through the scriptures. So to be righteous means that what you do fits reality. You're thinking, okay, okay, where's this going about God? All right, well, hang on. Let's apply that to God now. For God to be righteous would mean that what he does fits reality. So, think of God, eternity past. All there is is what? God. God's everything. From eternity past, there's God. Okay? And we talked about how, last week, that God is holy which means he is infinite in glory. Remember the theological word we used to define glory last week? It's how you feel when you see something that makes you say what? Wow. wow. Okay, any, any wow experiences this last week? How about 14 seconds left in the game <laughs> and Alex Smith connects to Vernon Davis and they win, okay? Wow. All right? Have you had some wow experiences? So when you feel a wow about something, what you just tasted is, is glory. Of course, as great as the 49ers are, God's glory is infinitely greater, okay? But so just remember what we talked about last week in terms of the, the wow. God's wow is infinitely greater than any wow anywhere. In fact, his wow fills the earth we saw last week from one of the Psalms, right? Because... God is a being who's always been. God is a being who is so powerful that with a word, he could speak this mind-blowingly huge universe into existence. Wow! And he's so immense that his presence fills this mind-blowingly huge universe. And he's sovereign over every single thing that happens from losing business licenses in Central Asia to needing a a kids club worker this week to every single detail of your life. God's in total sovereign control of everything. Wow. And God is full of joy in the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Powerful, celebrated, exuberant. Wow. As, as the Trinity fellowships in each other's perfections. And then last week we talked about God's love, which is a, just mind-blowing. That, that even though we deserve punishment from God, 
that Jesus would be willing to become a man and die on the cross so that we could be saved and restored to him. I mean, just on every point, it's wow, 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 wow. So God's wow is infinitely greater than any other wow that there is. And so for, for God to be righteous means that what he does fits the reality of his holiness, his infinite glory, his infinite wow. So here's the question. What should God do? What, what would fit infinite glory? What would God do that, that fits the fact that he has infinite glory? What would he do? What he does is he does everything to display his wow. He sees his wow, and the righteous, right thing for God to do is to do all he can do to to uphold it and to display it. That's righteousness for God, that he does everything he does to uphold and to display his infinitely supreme wow. Okay, you might be thinking, all right, that that sounds plausible, kind of a, a long train of thought there. Does the Bible teach that? I hope you're asking that question. Look at Psalm 143.11. We'll put it up here. There it is. All right, good job. Psalm 143.11. Look at this verse. Now, just a little explanation. In, in Hebrew poetry, they use something that they call parallelism, where you say the same truth in two different lines with different words. Okay, that's what's going on here. Look at Psalm 143.11. For your name's sake, O Lord, Preserve my life. So the psalmist is saying, save me for your name's sake. And then this next line, he's saying the exact same thing with different words. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Which means that for God to do something in his righteousness, in that second line, means that he does it for the sake of his name. So everything that God does, he does for the, for the highest value that's out there. I mean, think about it that way. Parents, you want your kids uh, you know, devoting their lives to something that's, that's important, right? I mean, not that they've all got to be you know, presidents or whatever, but with their gifts, with their talents, with their personality, that they would give their lives to something that matters, that counts. You don't want them, you don't want them watching TV all day long 24-7, right? It's like there's something more valuable to do here, Right? There is. A little more conviction on that one, right? There's, there's something more valuable to do here. Because we, you, want to, you want to do the most valuable thing, right? What's the most valuable thing that God can do? What's the most valuable thing? God is. So the most valuable thing God can do is to display God. That's what's righteous. There's nothing higher. And if he didn't do that, he'd be unrighteous. It'd be wrong for God not to, not to do that. So for God to be righteous means that everything he does, he does for the sake of his name to uphold and display his glory, his wow. Okay, now, I want to show you, just by taking you a little trip through the scriptures to show you that that is why God does everything that he does. I want you to see this. Is this really God's purpose for everything he does? Let's just walk through them. First of all, why did God create us? Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. 
Okay, God did not create us because he was lonely. Okay, he was not lonely. He was full of exuberant, heart-filling, ecstatic joy in the fellowship of the Trinity. He was overflowing with joy in his perfections. He wasn't lonely. Okay, he didn't create us because he was lonely. He created us, as this verse says, for his glory. Because as we see his wow, and as we celebrate his wow, his wow will be displayed all the more. So he shared his joy in himself with us so that we could display his joy all the more. He created us for his glory. Why did God part the Red Sea? Just taking a little trip here through Bible history. Psalm 106 verses 7 and 8 puts a very interesting statement about why. He says, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. So here's what's going on here. Israel had seen God do amazing things, right? Plagues, gnats, darkness, Nile turning into blood, Okay, the firstborn son kills, so that finally Pharaoh relents and says, you can go, you're no longer slaves here, go, get out of Egypt. And so they they escaped, free, finally, free at last. But they come up against the the Red Sea, right, a barrier they can't get across. And then they turn around and Pharaoh's armies are thundering towards them. Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh's armies behind them, remember how they responded? Why'd you bring us out here? Bring us out here to kill us? What's going on? Okay, that's what he's talking about here. So what do they deserve at this moment? What do they deserve at this moment? Are you feeling that? Now finish the verse. Yet he saved them. Why? All they deserve is punishment. Yes, but God had something else moving him besides what they deserved. Oh, this is good news. Uh, Aren't you glad God has something else moving him besides what you deserve? Because if that was all that motivated God, was like, well, what do these people deserve? Okay, we're in trouble. Judgment. God had something else moving him. What? His name. His holiness. His wow. So yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. They don't deserve this, but I deserve to have my power shown. Part, Red Sea! Wow! Yes, righteous. Okay, you feeling that? All right, next one. Why does God punish those who rebel against him? Ezekiel 28, 21 through 23. Now Sidon, just a little bit of background here, had been a terribly wicked city. God had patiently revealed himself to them, long-suffering, and they just continued in, in horrifying ways to sin. And so look what God says to Sidon. He says, Behold, I'm against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst. And they shall know that I am the Lord, when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her, for I will send pestilence into her and blood into her streets. So God's going to judge. He's going to send plague upon Sidon and he's going to bring conquering armies that will fill the streets with Sidonian blood. But why does God do this? Did you catch that? 
to manifest his glory in Sidon's midst so that she will know that God is God to manifest his holiness. In other words, to display who God is. See, if people continue in flagrant rebellion against God unendingly, that dishonors God's glory, right? And so God is slow to anger, slow to anger. But there comes a time where if God doesn't punish or something, or they don't change, but if they don't change and God doesn't punish, then God's dishonored, and that would be unrighteous for God because he would be dishonoring the glory of his name. And so he manifests his holiness, he manifests his glory by punishing the Sidonians. Let's look at the cross. What was God's purpose in the cross? Now we all know to save us, to forgive us, all those are true. But notice what Jesus says here. This is a very, it just touches my heart to see what's going on here in this passage. I think this is happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying as he's anticipating the cross. And look at what Jesus says. I mean, again, get the picture. This is God speaking. God the Son, fully God, who has always been whose word created the massive universe, who is so immense that he filled the universe. This is Jesus, who's fully God, but here he's become a man. And he says, now is my soul troubled. Just think about that. Now is my soul troubled, fully God. But as he anticipated what was going to happen at the cross, he was troubled, anguish filled his heart. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? In other words, deliver me from having to be crucified? Is that what I should say? Is that what I should say, Father? He says, no. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. I've come to this hour for the sake of being crucified. So what does Jesus say then? He doesn't say, Father, save me from this hour. He says, Father, glorify your name. See, that's the passion in God's heart is to manifest his glory, manifest his name. And think about how that happens on the cross. We're completely unworthy, right? There's nothing in us that moves God to do good for us. If, if God's just moves in terms of what we deserve, what we, what we are worth, punishment's coming. But in the cross, God displays his love for us. The cross is the most beautiful, infinitely spectacular display of love anywhere in the universe, anywhere in world history, anywhere in reality. The cross is the most astonishing display of love ever. Because here's Jesus who's anticipating horrible physical suffering for hours. But as I mean, for us, it's just like we just, that's just mind-boggling, but that's nothing compared to having the Father's wrath poured out upon him, and he did that for you, and for you, and for me, because he loves us. So here, you know, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, he's talking about Jesus, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Jesus loves you. So as he's, you picture him on the cross, he loves you. He cares about you. He has compassion for you. He would do that for you as undeserving as you and I are. And then this is a display of the Father's love because that the Father would be willing to send his Son, his only begotten Son whom he loves. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that the Father would, be, would punish him. 
pours wrath out upon him. Have him be beaten. Have him be scourged. Have the nail, the, the crown of thorns rammed down onto his head. Have him be nailed to the cross that the father would have that happen to his blameless, innocent son. Why? To show you how much he loves you so that you would see his love and just say, wow! See, the cross is the most astonishing display of love ever, anywhere, imaginable. He glorifies his name. We see his love and we say, wow. And that's what moved God. Remember, see, God didn't need to be moved by what we deserve. There was something else that moved God to do what he did. His passion for his name to display the glory of his love. Similar verse, why does God save people? Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. Are you, are you getting the drift here? I'm trying to show you that everything that God does is moved by the passion to display the glory of his name, his holiness, his wow. And we see it again here, Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious Grace. That's why. I mean, we've all turned against him, right? We all deserve. I mean, do you, do you feel the way that we deserve? We deserve eternal punishment from him. As, as I, it helps me, and I've said this before. If God had simply decided to to damn all of us to hell forever, the angels would have said, "Yes, you're awesome." You're righteous. You're amazing. Yes. I mean, the whole universe would have erupted in praise. Do you feel that? Do you feel how much we deserve that? But what does God do? He sends his own son. He punishes Jesus for our sins. And then he adopts you as his daughter. He adopts you as his son. And the angels are just like their jaws drop. Wow! Praise you! You are awesome! Do you feel that? As amazing as his judgment and his justice would be to judge, just this stunned silence fell through heaven when they saw the father punishing his son and then adopting you into his family. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Why does God lead us and pardon us and help us? Psalm 23.3 He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Psalm 25, 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 79, 9, Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. See, every mercy God shows to us is righteous because it's motivated by his display of his name, his glory, his wow, everything. Two more. What's the purpose of his second coming? You may not have seen this verse before. He's coming back to, to get us, right, to bring history to a close, but... But what, what drives it? Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 9-10. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. This is those who haven't bent the knee to Jesus. These are those who haven't received Jesus into their lives as Savior, Lord, and treasure. Have you bent the knee to Jesus? I mean, honestly. Not, not do you go to church. Not do you try to be good. And none of that matters when it comes to being forgiven and saved. Have you bent the knee to Jesus 
surrendered your life to him in faith and received him into your life as your Savior and your Lord and your heart-satisfying treasure. If so, then you're not in that first line. If you haven't, then unless something changes, you are. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. He's going to come back to be glorified in us. The the redeemed, we will be falling on our faces before him in worship. He will be glorified in our worship and he'll be marveled at by all of us to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then finally, what's the purpose of heaven? What's heaven all about? Revelation 21, 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. What, what light shines in heaven? Not sun, not moon, it's the light of God's glory. Heaven is a place shining with the glory of God and the lamp through which God's glory shines is the Lamb that was slain. It's through Jesus, the most, most clear picture of his love and his mercy. So heaven is all about God forever before us displaying his holiness, his glory, his wow. Okay, so here's, here's what I want to persuade you to, to, to see in the scriptures, I hope, through this survey, and is that God's holiness, we saw last week, is the fact that he has infinite glory. He has the supreme wow That's who he is. His perfection set him infinitely above everything else that is. That's his holiness. And his righteousness is that he responds to the reality of who he is in a way that's fitting to his reality. What's fitting? How do you respond to infinite value? You do everything you can do to uphold and to display that value. That's himself. So he does everything that he does to display and uphold his name, his glory, his... Wow. That's what he does. Okay, now... Why is this such good news for us? Because when you read through the scriptures, you'll find in the Psalms particular, psalmists praising God for his righteousness. Thank you that you're righteous. Thank you for your righteousness. Everything you do is righteous. All your works are righteous. Why, why should we be so excited about this? Well, here's, here's an explanation. See if this works for you. It's because your highest Joy, I mean, infinitely higher than anything else, your highest joy is seeing God's wow. See where this is going? See, if your highest joy is seeing God's wow, and if God's, if everything God does is done to display his wow, that means everything God does is going to bring you your highest joy. Okay, let me try to give you an illustration. Um, what if you heard, I hope this works, you'll tell me if it, do, if it, if it does, maybe it doesn't, but what, what if you heard that, that the God of the universe, he marshals all of his power and his wisdom and, and his passion to, to, bring, to bring you a million dollars every year. He's going to devote himself entirely and he's going to bring you a million dollars every year. I mean, I wouldn't turn it down, right? I mean, that, right? Did you, it's like, you'd think, how'd you feel about that? Anyone? Anyone? Be honest. Be honest, okay. You'd, you'd think, wow, okay. It's like, 
if, if God was devoted to bringing me a million dollars a year, that, that would be all right. I mean, okay, right? Okay. Now, you all know, of course, I mean, a million dollars, it's hard to conceive of that, whatever. I remember a quote from Lee Iacocca, a uh, very successful businessman, you know, Chrysler, the whole thing. But at the end of his life, I mean, he's, he's still alive, I think, isn't he? Anyway, he said, fame and fortune are for the birds. That's one thing I've learned. Famous for the birds, fortunes for the birds. Okay? See, every other joy you get tired of. If you had a million dollars a year, you'd be tired of it soon. You would. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. People with scads of money, they have exact same struggles that you've, you've got. Maybe more. Okay? All right. So here, here's my point. The, the reason we don't feel more excited about God's righteousness is because we don't feel enough joy in God's wow. That's why. That's why. This is the best news God could possibly give us. See, the most loving thing God could do for you, the the infinitely most loving thing God could do for you, is do everything he does to display his glory. Why is that the most loving thing God could do? Because you have no higher joy. Your highest joy, your like infinitely highest joy, more than anything else, is to behold his glory to worship him, to see who he is. And so the most loving thing God can do for you is exactly what God is doing for you. Everything necessary to change you, save you, change your heart, display who he is so that you, from now forever, like in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there's pleasures forever. That's why this is such amazing news is because there is no higher Joy, this is the highest joy. This is the most loving thing that God could do for you is to display his glory. And so all through history, from creation, Israel, Sidon, the cross, adoption, second coming, heaven, all of this is done so that we can see who God is. Now, I would guess that for some of you, you're hearing me say this is good news, you're not feeling it, okay? Um, you don't you don't know you don't know God you don't connect with God and and uh, and you're just not feeling all this talk about you know the the, the joy of beholding God's wow the joy of beholding God's glory you're you're just not feeling it and so I can say it's good news but it's like um, there's just not it's not resonating there can I be kind of blunt um, I mean for years I that's where I was too. Uh, and, and the problem isn't that God's not there. The problem isn't that God isn't all satisfying when you see him. My problem, which I think is, is, is the Bible says is yours too, is that my sin had hardened my heart. So I, I just wasn't, I wasn't interested in God. My sin had hardened my heart. That's what sin does. You know, it hardens our hearts. And so if you're not feeling this right now, it doesn't surprise me, but here's the good news, okay? See, even here, God has good news for you. And that is, if you will turn to Jesus Christ as you are, you can't change your own heart, but you can turn to Jesus and come to him as you are and say, forgive me for my sin, which has hardened my heart, and soften my heart, change my heart. I see what you've done to the cross. Forgive me. Change me by your resurrection power. Make me a, you know, get, create in me a clean heart like David prayed in, in Psalm 51. I, I guarantee you, right now you're feeling nothing of this. 
if you will ask Jesus to forgive you and to soften your heart and to change your heart, he will. And you will, for the first time, taste and feel the infinite joy of the universe for the first time. So do that. Do that this morning. There's no reason not to turn to Jesus. You say, well, I'm not good enough. Exactly. That's why you come to him as you are. Well, I, I, you know, I haven't been to church. Yes, I mean, all that stuff. I, it's not about our goodness. It's about his goodness. It's about his mercy because that displays his wow. That's why this is such amazing news. You could leave here this morning for the first time tasting the infinite joy of the universe because you haven't tasted it yet. Okay, how about the rest of us? See, even after we've been saved, even after we've done that, can we let sin harden our hearts so we stop sensing this as strongly? I, I, I do. I can. All of us. Sin sullies our hearts. Sin hardens our hearts. And so we, we're just not sensing it. We're not tasting it. And so here, I just want you to be really honest about this. I mean, all this about God's holiness, God's righteousness, he displays his wow. That's the most loving thing he could do because that's our highest joy. Have you felt that? Or how long has it been since you've, you've tasted? Since you've had a time where you're worshiping the Lord Jesus, maybe here Sunday morning with the music, and you're just, you're seeing, and you're savoring, and you're loving. How, how long has it been? And so here's the good news. Uh, you can turn to Jesus as you are also. I need to do this at least once or twice a day, okay? You can turn to Jesus just as you are and say, here I am. Sin has brought some hardness into my heart. I'm feeling spiritually dull. Help me. Forgive me. Wash me. Change me. Soften my heart. And he will. He totally will. And see, then, again, you'll taste. You'll taste. I, I mentioned this story in my blog just this, this last week. I forget what morning it was. But I was, I was driving to an appointment and I was feeling very, I mean, I was letting worries and discouragement hard my heart. So I just was sensing very, like nothing spiritually. I don't want to overstate it, but really, all I was feeling was worry and discouragement. I was not feeling trust in the Lord or worship of the Lord or the glory of the Lord. I was just feeling discouragement and worry. And I, and I, I pulled out uh, my 3 by 5 cards. Uh, I was reviewing Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and I came upon the line, I think it's in verse 8, in him we've obtained an inheritance. Just that phrase. And that word inheritance, I just stopped there and, and, and I just said, God, I'm not, it, that just doesn't resonate with me. I'm not feeling it. Help me. Forgive me. I'm totally preoccupied by worries and fears right now. And he did. He did. That word inheritance. All of a sudden, I, I thought, I'm going to see God. And then I felt a little bit of what that would mean. And I was back to the place then. He softened my heart. He forgave me. He cleansed me. He changed me. So I just want us to be really, see, everything starts here. We talked about every, it all starts with knowing God. Those who know their God shall stand firm and take action. This is the heart of knowing God. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? So that you see him and you worship him and you love him. And it's in his presence truly for you that there is fullness of joy. It's at his right hand 
truly that there are pleasures forever. Do you know him through Jesus Christ? Do you know him? If you don't, come to know him or get stronger in knowing him, whatever is, is where you're at. Do that because the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And Mercy Hill Church, we will not be able to stand firm. We will not be able to take any action of any significance unless we know God. We've got to know him, know him, know him. So listen, set everything else aside and make it your top priority to know God through Jesus. Listen, a hundred years from now, I mean, God calls us to do other things. Lead your family. Provide. Care for your wife. Respond to your husband, okay? Love your kids. You know, love your neighbor. Serve the poor. Lots of other things God calls us to do. But the infinitely most important thing is that you know God through Jesus Christ. And 100 years from now, that's all that's going to count. Knowing God. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? He is standing before you in Jesus Christ on the cross, arms wide open, there's nothing that should hold you back from coming to know him. There's nothing between you and him. He's just saying, you can know me. You can know me. You can know me. You can know me. Right? If you'll just humble yourself, surrender yourself to me, come as you are, admit that you... You're not worthy of of his love and you deserve his punishment, but that he promises his love and his forgiveness in Christ. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to change you and he will. Let's stand. I want to pray this over us. Oh, Father, I, I pray that right now you would enable each of us just to be really honest, Lord about whether or not we know you. Not whether we go to church, not whether we believe certain doctrines, but whether we know you through Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, you have so displayed your wow by what you've done through Christ. Your arms are open wide to us. There is nothing that should keep us from coming to you to be forgiven and changed and cleansed. And God, I pray... I pray for those who have never come to know you, those who've never put their trust in Christ. Lord, today, please, I plead with you, bring them to faith. Today, do that. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us. We, we all can let sin harden our hearts and distract us from you and we can head off in different directions. Lord, would you bring your power upon us as well right now and that we would lay other things aside and make knowing you our top passion. Please, I pray that you would do that, Lord. For the glory of your name, bring your power upon us, I pray. In Jesus' name.